I didn't know to <laughs> to cross my legs when I recorded my first podcast here. <laughs> and so I'm like sitting here slouched like this, <laughs> legs spread open, just full. I, my wife called it a mangina. Hilarious. Yeah, it was just it looked like I had the biggest fupa, so I had to like the camel foot. I did, yeah. <laughs> I had to go back and re-edit the entire podcast just to like frame my face so it didn't show. That's so funny. Where where is our parade? You know, our, we got to march for uh fupa, male fupa awareness. We need to be aware of our own fupas. <laughs> Cuz I never seen myself like that. You know when you see yourself like from a third party perspective, it's the and, nightmare. Yeah, and you're like, oh my god, is that how I actually from look? the side? That's what I look like. People are staring at this hideous. Uh, yeah, we always like. I've become very good at looking at myself at the exact right angle. I'm like Zoolander in the mirror. You know, mm-hmm. I just like know how to see myself, and then like you get that that rogue uh, that rogue angle that you didn't record, and you're wow. like, oh god, I hate the way I exist. The con- <laughs> the conflict between how you see yourself first person versus how you think people see you third person that that more creates so much angst internally that i i it's it's hard to deal with yeah well i i heard a thing once about how we really don't know what we look like because every time we see a mirror image of ourselves every time we look in the mirror we're seeing the reverse image Mm -hmm. so like sometimes they have these like these mirrors or like these like graphics where it's like you can see yourself exactly as you look back not the not the flipped and it's like, oh, wow, we don't even really know what we look like. No, and like the way when you take selfies on a phone and when it like it because it takes the picture from that mirror kind of angle. And mm-hmm. then when you actually take it, it flips it around. It's like, oh, my God, is that how my nose sits on my face? Yeah. Is that what the part in my hair looks like? Uh-huh. And with camera lenses now, like those those things are distorted, too. Like your ears are tucked back. Like it's not really you never really know how you exist in the world. No, dude. I philosophically, I think I could talk through this for about two hours. <laughs> Just beca- Again, that conflict between what you think you are versus what you actually are, or how you're perceived and whether that perception is even real. Like what even is who you actually are yeah it's terrifying i mean even in just the physical space i think about it a lot where it's like this would be so much easier like i'm like looking at my solo show and i'm like this would be so much easier if i could sit in the back of the theater and like see like a hologram of myself walk around yeah even when you look at it on video you're like i don't really know like how i'm moving i don't i can't really see it let alone the the philosophical stuff where it's like <laughs> what do people think of me you want to have like a thirty thousand foot view of yourself almost just get that full like omnipresent perspective yeah and it's it's kind of it's kind of terrifying there's a part of it so it's like it's good to have tunnel vision because mm-hmm. i just exist in the world i can't control other people's thoughts about like how i look sound or feel put the blinders on man it's and the only as way to get through. comics we listen to ourselves way more than most people i know Recording well, sets, whatever it is. I, I've very quickly got over that fear of like, I hate hearing the sound of my own voice just mm. because it's not like I like it now, or maybe I do, and that's why I do comedy and record a podcast. <laughs> but it just, I've gotten so immune to it. I've heard it so much. It's like, yeah, I guess I do sound like that. Mm-hmm. You ever listen to an old set and you're like, my, my voice was higher? <laughs> my voice was higher. I'm talking faster. I'm, I'm, my words are more forced. Like yeah. I, watching a set from five years ago, it, you just think, who the hell is that guy? Totally. And yet there's little nuggets. Like when I listen to an old set, there, there's one in particular. It was like one of my first bringer shows at Greenwich. And like my uncle came in from New Jersey with his wife. Like it was like a whole thing. And like I listen to it now and I'm like, oh, this is like Seinfeld and Verbiglia. But also there's like nuggets of like, oh, like that's like that joke. That's a theme of like the hour I do now, but just like one line. But it's like it all started from that like five minute set. It came back around to yeah. it, it, it grew out of that into who you actually feel comfortable being now. Yeah, but it was the the cheap one line version as opposed to the like 75 minute freaking thing you know but it's it's interesting to at a, at a certain point i wrote down all my jokes and i wrote down all my stories and i was like oh i only talk about like four things <laughs> like i'm like you know it's but that's like, it's almost like good to have like a um to me that's a sign of a very clear point of view oh sure sure yeah i part of me is fear is like oh i wish i could just like write a joke about like blue couches you know like like one of those people that can just kind of like churn out stuff because, um, like, my cousin writes for TV. He writes for The Daily Show, and he has for a bunch of years. And is your cousin Matt Coff? It's not, but okay. we call him Cousin Coff. Okay. Um, my cousin's name is Devin Delaquanti. 
Uh, and he works with Kaufman, their friends. I only say that because, yeah, you guys have the similar, the beard. Look. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think he's the funniest comic. I think he's so good. So um, good. But my cousin Devin's like really, really great at just being like, here's the take. Here's the five jokes here are the beats oh sub out that joke for this joke like he just like has that brain now because of years and years and years of every day just doing that where when you do a solo show like it's like it's years on this just like one document <laughs> as opposed to him every day his brain wipes clear yeah and it, write a new thing of comedy it's like practice of just starting from scratch all the time whereas yeah. with, a, with a solo show or, or an hour you're kind of living in it yeah constantly. yeah I, and mike kaplan i had this great analogy that i share um, about they had a guy make a ceramic bowl and they're like, you have a hundred days to make like a perfect ceramic bowl and you can edit it and move it around and look at it and send it and show it to people. And they had another guy make a new ceramic bowl every day. And at the end of the hundred days, the guy who had made one every day, his looked better than the guy who did one bowl. Over that's, that's like days. a real story. Right? I feel like yeah. I've read that somewhere. Yeah. 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 And that, yeah, maybe it's not even an analogy. It's well, maybe the analogy is, talking about it in terms of comedy. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think that's a real thing and or a science experiment or whatever it is. And that's the kind of thing that, that speaks to me in the sense that like, oh, like I, sometimes you can be too precious. Yeah, you can be up your own ass about yeah. the thing you're working on. Yeah, so just like make a new, like that's when I started in New York, we can get into this, but like I, I was like, I'll do stand up a hundred times and if I feel like I'm getting better and it's not a complete waste of time, I will keep going. And I did it a hundred times and it was like mostly mics, mm -hmm. occasional bar shows. You know, you're just like, I remember being like, how do you get on a real show? <laughs> Still no idea. I, uh... How do you get into a comedy club? <laughs> Even more difficult. Yeah. Oh, couldn't tell you. Yeah. No, because I, <laughs> I referred somebody to, to a club recently um, and they have like 400,000 followers on Instagram and, and like a million on TikTok. Like, and they're legitimately funny and like work on comedy. And the person I referred them to was like, yeah, it's really busy right now. I was like, even this guy? <laughs> I was like, this, there's no justice Oh, in the my world. God. I should quit right now. I know. Like, what what I hope know. is there? I know. So it's, everybody's kind of like crawling up. But I did it 100 times, and I wrote a blog about it. And so I would like write out my set. I'd be like, here's my Doritos tacos joke. Here's my dating in high school joke. Here's my whatever. And I would like write about it. And it got to a certain point where I was like, I was just like too far up my own ass. It's mm -hmm. like, you can't write about doing a thing. You have to just do it. <laughs> I know. I struggle because I do a weekly vlog with this too. And I struggle with that of like just trying to get out and work on new material, but also like put myself out there and go to shows and message people. But it's like having to like film it and comment it on it in this at the same time can be really, really like you just the um, like the your brain just kind of turns into a pretzel and, and again goes in on itself. Yeah. Where sometimes I think it's easier. I've been meaning to do this more often and I'm trying to like I went to Graham K. He did a solo show the other night at mm -hmm. QED and I just like sat in the back with Julia Solomon and I took some notes because he had asked me to um, tell me tell him what I thought. And I was like, oh, it's just so good. And I remember Mulaney talking about this. He's like, sometimes you just got to sit in the back of a comedy club and like remember how it sounds like the beats of it because mm -hmm. I can get so theoretical and like I'm having coffee and I'm at lunch and I'm I could even call a comic and that's not the same sometimes you have to just like sit in the back of the room and just like hear the beats hear how some because for me it's like oh I feel like those mirror neurons mm -hmm. where I'm like oh like that's how you talk to a crowd member that's yeah. how you because you get jealous for me I get jealous and I'm like oh if I were up there this is what I would do you take <laughs> mental reps yeah I'm guilty of that but it's not even like you have to uh, hear the beats. You almost just kind of have to feel them. Because if you yes, you, if, if you take it in and you hear it and you think, oh, well, he said X, Y, and Z because of A, B, and C. It's like that That even defeats the purpose a little bit of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of have to feel like um, – and sometimes it's like, oh, this crowd, you like learn about a crowd. Isn't this a nightmare? You, you I'm sure you know this. When you're on a show and you get there like – couple comics early and you like watch the show a little bit and you watch the host like oh he's got an inside joke with this person he's got an inside joke with that person or like they like this material whatever and then somebody maybe sometimes a fancy person comes in last they haven't seen anything they ask somebody what they do in the front row and they're like we already covered this like you're not part of the crew and i've always felt like as a comedian that's the benefit of doing fewer sets but more meaningful ones where it's like you get there, you you check, you hang out in the room for a half hour, as opposed to being this like assassin who does twelve sets a night, and you don't make no connection with any. I, group. Yeah, I see. I see what you mean. So it's not you're not just in and out doing the jokes. Like you're feeling the vibe of the place that you're in. Yeah, that's what makes can make comedy feel really special. 
um, and can make it. And that's, you know, one of the benefits, I think, of a place where comics can hang out and watch each other and be supportive, where sometimes some of those rooms, it's like, that's not really the culture. The culture is like one person descends and does their 15 minutes and, and nobody watches and nobody um, uh, nobody pays attention. Or like if they do pay attention, it's because they're like, David tells on stage, I'll have to watch this. But it's like, in theory, like you want to like kind of see what's i think a good host watches and yeah. as frustrating as that is because it's so easy to be like even a qed i'm like oh i'll pop it in the back and just like get a diet soda it's it's somehow comedy which it makes comedy which is a singular individual pursuit feel a little more collaborative yeah and not just in the way that's like he was talking about armchairs i got an armchair riff it's like Oh, like you did not like that incest joke. Like, yeah. what's going on with you? You did not like the armchair bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like whatever it is. Yeah, it's, there's a community feel to it. And listen, I get it. People are busy, whatever. But I think if you have an empathy for the audience, because God, how many times have we performed for people and they're just like, "Why are you here? Like, this is like this must be horrible for you. There's six of you or five mm -hmm. of you." Um, and having just like a little bit of empathy for the audience. Oh, they're at a five o'clock show in Queens or in, even in at New York Comedy Club. Sometimes you get that five o'clock sleepy audience. Um, being aware of that sometimes is just as valuable as having great jokes. Yeah. Um, where it's like I'm talking with you, not at you. I'm not coming in and just going. Bah, 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 bah. It's the definition of being present. Yeah. Modulating based on the circumstance. Totally. And not even just being present in your set, but being present like at the show. Like, mm -hmm. oh, I was watching that guy. That guy was so funny. Like. Like you guys love like whatever it is. Sometimes it teaches you. Sometimes it even teaches you what jokes to do. It's like, oh man, you like football stuff. Like I got a bunch of football bits, you it's know, a, it's a shared experience. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, you meant, all right. You mentioned something a few minutes ago. I made a mental note of it because you Please. talked about when you started, um, you said, oh, I sounded like uh, Seinfeld and Berbiglia. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to talk about this because I think you and I have the shared experience of being inspired to start stand-up by Mike Birbiglia. Yeah. Were you were you in DC? I was so what happened to me was like I, I had always loved stand-up from a very young age. Grew up with Seinfeld. Yeah. Um I saw Chris Rock's Bring the Pain at a very young age. Oh, probably too yeah. young, I would think. Yeah. Um I don't know if you that Dana Carvey special Critics Choice that used to be on Comedy Central all the time. Yeah, I know that one. That was a huge influence. So I'd always loved stand up and wanted to do stand up, but as I got older, like into high school and college, I kind of forgot about it a little bit as I focused more on football. Mm -hmm. And then I remember I was home for winter break, junior year of college, and Mike Birbiglia did a set on the late night with Conan O'Brien. It wasn't even the Tonight Show or the Conan Show. It was yeah. the after the Tonight Show Conan Show, and I I just I never heard of him before. He did five minutes um, off of Two Drink Mike, uh -huh. and I just like I don't even know what I was doing watching it because I wasn't a regular Conan watcher then. But I remember sitting up in my bed and being like, "Who is this guy? Yeah, he's incredible. Yeah." And then I went out the next day, bought his CD, and listened to. I remember I distinctively remember listening to it on the drive to my grandparents' house for Christmas wow. and being blown away and rem remembering like, oh yeah, I love stand-up comedy. Yeah. When I get out of college, I need to do stand-up. Totally. And you, is there a particular bit or particular joke that you remember? Um, From the late night set, I want to, the, the mattress bit about bringing a mattress in. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Which is great. But then I remember dying laughing in the car listening to this on the album he didn't do this on conan but the thing about um this is my white guy doing a black guy doing a white guy voice like, yeah, like we yeah. all talk like that i feel bad for the one guy who does talk like that and that just that my parents like, what the hell are you listening to right yeah. now it's like, it'd take too long to explain don't worry about it yeah so he really was the genesis for me for starting stand-up after i got out of college yeah me too i'm gonna take one quick tangent to say my friend recently took a stand-up class in brooklyn because he's a storyteller he's like i want to do stand-up and all the 22 21 year olds nyu bushwick whatever they're like who are your favorite comedians they're like oh i love cat cohen i love bo and yang like cool i get it totally like that's your generation whatever um and then my buddy Esmond goes, yeah, like I love Mike Birbiglia. And the class didn't know who he was talking about. And I was like, this is insane. Everyone should be in jail. <laughs> but he's still active. Like, I don't understand. I know. He has like multiple Netflix specials. I was he like, was in a Taylor Swift music I video. I know. I know. He's in a Taylor Swift video. He's in a Taylor He's very famous. Um, but it, it, that made me laugh a lot. Because um, I was like, well, he's my favorite. So it's funny that you say that. Because I found his like early stand-up later. 
I was, for me, it was Boston 2013. I was visiting a girlfriend in, in Cambridge, Mass. And my buddy Nick texted me. He's like, dude, there's a special on Netflix. My girlfriend's boyfriend. Like, you've got to watch it. And I watched it with my then girlfriend. And like, I'm like dying. Like, there's a couple jokes in there that like really spoke to me. Um, when he's like, uh, he accidentally tells his future wife on one of their first dates that he loves her. And she's like, you love me? <laughs> and he's like, he was like, I mean, I think you're cool. He's like, I pulled it back. And I'm like, oh, like this guy, this guy feels like me. This guy feels like the kind of guy and like the way he connected different stories about his life. And I watched the special and like, it's so funny to watch something that becomes so influential in your life. Cause now I've printed it out and marked it up. And like, I like know that special in and out. Like I can go beat by beat and kind of like talk about it. And it really, it's influenced my show. It's huge for me. And I remember like, like telling this girl, I was like, you don't understand. Like I could do that. Like that is, and she, I remember her saying this. She's like, you're just so impulsive. Like you just like, and I was like, no, you don't understand. Like, this is different. <laughs> this is not like this time, this time I'm serious. Like, this is not like music composition or like being a music, like it wasn't like the other things. I was like, I'm not trying to be an actor. Like, I think I could do this type of storytelling. And the big joke is that of course I was right, <laughs> but it just takes so long mm -hmm. because I didn't realize that like he had done he did Letterman at 25 and like had this long career before he pivoted and same with Hassan Minaj. Like he had this long career and then he moved over to solo shows where I assume I had that in the back of my head, 2013. And then, um, and then I went back, God, there's some of those jokes that like, I was like, F this guy, like that should have been mine where he, he was talking about mean people from high school. And he's like, they walk into the classroom and they're like, you're fat, you're gay. I'm out of here. here. Yeah. So oh, that's good. the class clown back then. It's yeah. so, and I remember being like, how was he at Garden City High School in 2007? Mm -hmm. Like, this is so unfair that he gets to say that and I don't when I lived it, you know? But those are the best because they take that universal, ex universal experience and make it seem super particular. So you're like, he's talking about what happened to me. Yeah. I should have done that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it was mostly like envy of being able to express. Yeah, he was like talking about my life, and then and that's the thing I've really noticed that in my solo show, I have like offhanded details about like uh, singing for old people and how old people love you no matter what, even if you're bad at singing, they thank you for singing, and it's just a minor detail in this whole big thing. And afterwards, sometimes people will come up to me and they're like, "Oh my god, old people love singing," and I'm like, "That's the thing that you glommed onto, like that made you." you feel like I was talking just to you. It's like, oh, that's cool. Um, so I knew I had solo shows in the back of my head. And then I taught in Scotland after college. And I did probably like 25 or 30 sets over there, mics, couple shows, um, just because, and it was nice because I needed something to do all day, meaning just like I would listen to Pete Holmes. <laughs> I would listen to You Made It Weird. And I would write jokes and drink coffee. And it was a, so nice. It was a thing I could do every day. And I was anonymous. I was American. And so they cared about what I had to say. They were like, oh, an, an American guy. And also, I wasn't worried about like bombing in front of my family. There was nobody around. <laughs> oh, dude, you're so lucky. Because some of us, when we started stand-up, we invite our friends and family to our first five of open mics. Of course. And I look back on it now and like, if I could like shrink into this couch uh -huh. with shame, I absolutely would. So, so you're in Scotland. You're there for school or for work? I was, t I had a teaching job. Okay. Um, and I didn't work very much. It was like this fellowship where I just kind of like popped in. I would go on field trips. I would like hang out with a couple kids, but it wasn't very intense. And so uh, I had a little bit of money and because they like gave me a place to live. So I had a little bit of money and I would just write all day. And I kind of knew... Like I got better, like like there were these um, Monday nights at the, a place called The Stand, which is unrelated to the New York yeah. Club. But there's a Edinburgh Stand, a Glasgow, and a Newcastle in the nor in Northern England. And on Mondays they have these like basically like new comedian nights. And I was doing five minutes, and that was the first time in front of like real people. And I remember by the end I'd probably done like five or six of them, and like the last one went like really well. And I remember being, and they offered me a bunch of spots, and I was like, I'm going back to New York. Like I can't. 
uh, do these. And I remember being like, oh, like, I'm kind of good at this. Like, I could do this full time. And then you get to New York and you're like, oh, I suck. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I have nothing. <laughs> that uh, It's not like Glasgow's a small pond or anything, but just any initial success oh, yeah. or, or what feels like success at the time. Because looking back on it, if you were to watch those sets, you probably would. Would hate them. Yeah, yeah. of course. But you feel this incremental progress as you're starting. And so you're like, oh, this is just going to keep going forever, and it's it's going to be right to the top. So I'll yeah. go I'll go to New York, and then th- this this momentum will keep up, yeah, and and we're good to go. There was a comic over there who would headline the shows and do like 25 minutes, um, and the, one of the first shows I went to the stand to watch a show, and that night he wasn't headlining, but he went like first, and he just destroyed, and I was like, whoa, this is the funny like comedy in scotland's awesome like this guy's amazing this is the coolest thing ever and then everyone else after the show after him was like very disappointing so i was like oh who's that guy and his name was larry dean and i ended up then being on a show with him and he make made the audience laugh in a in a way like a decibel that i just like never heard before Mm -hmm. and he was like a year or two older than me and i came back to to scotland eventually to do the fringe and he was just like Scottish comedian of the year, like super popular towards the UK, towards Australia. And I was like, I fucking knew it. Yeah. You weren't just seeing some other random guy. This was a very specifically talented. Yes. And he hadn't like broken off yet in any sort of meaningful way. But by the five years later, by the time I came back. And so that's sometimes one of the benefits of like a smaller pool where, um, you know, like I was behind him certainly, but, he gets to do more comedy in theory, like mm-hmm. maybe not 10 sets a night, but like longer sets for people who listen <laughs> and like good shows in front of actual crowds. Yeah. Because it's not, um, the, su- it's not, the supply isn't oversaturated with comedy shows. Yeah. If anything, now Edinburgh has an alt room called the monkey barrel, which is basically like, I describe it as like UCB, but for stand up. So it's like weird there's like a culture in the UK of like weird comedy. Yeah. Like um, musical comedy too, I would think. Musical and sometimes they love puns and like stuff that like doesn't always fly in America. Yeah. They're like a little bit more open to. Um, and so they were like kind of hitting a peak because now there's like the stand, which is like they're like, it's kind of like their cellar. Um, and now they have a second room. And then the monkey barrel opened and it's like, oh, now there's these two, you can kind of do both. I remember hearing... I think it was Pete Holmes maybe talk about like uh, there's the weight room, which is like the clubs, which is like joke, 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 joke. And then for me, the storytelling is like the cardio where it's like long form. You have a little bit, you can tell a story. It doesn't have to have a joke every two seconds. And then if you can combine those things, now you're really cooking. Now you're uh, a CrossFit athlete. Of yes. comedy. Yeah. Which is how, how, in the same time we can talk about an old Birbiglia joke. And I like to drink Mike, but when he put it together in like the story with heart, I was like, oh my God, like this is where I want to live. Well, yeah. So that's the thing I love about his storytelling because the knock on storytelling or like the lazy criticism is like, oh, it's stand up without jokes. Sure. Of course. But when I watch his stuff, all of his shows and even the new Mulaney special that just came out, it is stories, but it's punchy all the way through. And like that to me is the apex of, of what comedy can be where it's like, it's, it's funny every fit. There's a laugh every 15 seconds, but there's a thread and you're invested and you're drawn in. I think Burr even had that in his new special Mm. where he talks about doing mushrooms and then reflecting on his childhood and then applying that to how he raises his kids. It's like this 35 minute arc that I was just like blown away by completely. Totally. It's a really difficult thing. And I am all for like the theaterfication of stand up. Because, like, I can watch a Burt Kreischer special and be like, great, I got it. You got that one big closing story. Awesome. Like, I get what you're doing. You're entertaining America. Very difficult. But, like, when somebody like Burr or Mulaney, great example, like, starts to, like, tweak things a little bit. And, like, they want, like, clearly Mulaney, like, wants you to feel something. Mm Because at the end of the special, it just came out. But maybe by the time you listen to this, I'm sure your listeners will have heard Mulaney. But, like, he thanks the people who saved his life. You know, yeah. like, there's, like, he makes a connection between, like, tray tables as an addict, tray tables as a parent. Like, uh, and, Yeah, like, the, the changing table. Yeah. That, yeah. And, but the, 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 the bit about how every time he's, like, mad that he has so many people that saved his life. Hilarious. Is because you just have, at the core of that bit is just that annoyance that every comedian has with small 
obligations yeah. of like pretending to fight for the check and then applying that to um the the gratitude for the people that intervened for him. Yeah. Like I th- I think that's what you're talking about too. It's an example of it where you have the bit and the observation and the comedy but also just the heart and the humanity yeah. and you can tie them together. Totally. And if anything, and I'm not even talking about like the um, his marriage because that's all like tabloid fodder now. And yeah. when you're really famous, like you get into these webs where it's like teens on TikTok are like exploring. Like, oh, yeah. Here's the explainer of how John Mulaney's marriage fell apart. Now yeah. he's dating Taylor Swift. Yeah, like, it's yeah, just, exactly. It's insane. I don't need that. But for me as like a theater person, and I, I was talking to Renan about this because I produced Renan's special over COVID during on Zoom. Mm-hmm. And Renan has this great observation about like, my life was a mess, but like when I would do drugs, and I would look at that pill and I would be like, things are going to be okay because I have this pill. It's going to calm me down. I'm going to feel nothing like that. Like the passion almost that he speaks about, like what it felt like to do drugs where I'm like, Oh, Mulaney, like give me that. Like I'm like, we're one step away from like, what is your relationship to like doing a line of cocaine? Like, can we get even a little bit more? That's why I said that special could have been three hours long. And yes. I would have been invested. He yeah. actually, I watched a clip of him on um, Theo Vaughn's podcast recently. Where I loved he, it. He talked, yeah, the, the 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 twelve minute clip where he talked about like the days were the worst parts. It was just one crisis after another. Yeah. that I was navigating to, and I really got a sense of, yeah, this is what his day to day life was like. And then he got into. Like, like it wasn't like a, all of a sudden I'm addicted to drugs again. It was like a slow build over many years. I yeah. did not know that at all. And that's that's knowing that I think informs the special a little bit more. Yeah. And the for me, it was that detail of like, oh, I'll take a couple Xanax before I do late night mm-hmm. and then I'll balance it off with this. And it's like, oh, like it was a work thing. Yeah. You know, in the same way, you know, you're you're an athlete in the same way that people are like, oh, I took some painkillers to play football. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm doing heroin. It's like, oh, my God. My job is to be a football player, so I have to take this to be a football player. So it's it's fine. It's not morally wrong. It's yeah. for a greater good, or it's for my livelihood. It's for my family. Yeah. And, you, I mean, you'll hear people talk about baseball and steroids like that. Like, people are like, there's been, like, this renaissance, particularly on Twitter, where they're like, Mark McGuire. Yeah, man. He, like, made baseball cool. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, yeah, dude, he hit a hundred home runs and he ate McDonald's. Like the guy, that guy rips. Sick goatee. <laughs> yeah. dude, I, I remember that summer. I remember getting up, like eating dinner with my parents and getting up from the table when Mark McGuire would go to bat just yeah. and standing by the TV to see if he would hit number 62. Yeah. It was a huge deal. And I remember being a kid, like there were little books about him. I'd go to the library. It's like, ooh, Mark McGuire's rookie season, like explained. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very skinny. We don't know why he got bigger. Uh-huh. Best not to think about it too much. <laughs> yeah, it's like him and Barry Bonds. And like, I was just listening to a basketball podcast, and they're like, they're talking about like the new um, CB, like players' agreement. And they're like, yeah, they're not needle testing for HGH anymore. <laughs> Where it's like, that's not a news story in the greater America, but like, oh, people are just going to do HGH now. <laughs> yeah, totally. These freakish athletes are going to become even more freakish and ginormous. Like, good for them, I yeah, guess. Yeah. yeah, they're seven feet tall. It's like, I get it. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone does it. It's probably fine. Yeah, oh my God. The Rock, you know. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. If it's good so enough funny. for Fast and the Furious, it's good enough for the NBA. Yeah, they're kind of the same thing. Like, there's drama. There's behind-the-scenes drama. There's, like, what happens in the movies. Like, it's all, it's all wrestling. That's it. Dude, it really is. Politics is wrestling. Oh, my God. Uh, like, um, cable news is wrestling. Yeah. When you see people like, oh, why is Tucker Carlson saying this? It's like, because it's funny to him and his audience. Yeah. Like, that's why. Yeah, yeah. He's like a huge troll. Mm-hmm. And he'll bake in, like, obviously he says things where I'm like, well, that seems racist. And then he'll poke in a thing where he's like, actually, the two parties are the same. And I'm like, well, I agree with one-eighth of a thing that you just said. Am I a racist? Like, no, no, no. Obviously, I can distinguish what part's racist and what part's not racist. But it's like, oh, if you bake in, like, one thing that I agree with, it, like, for people who aren't me, they're like, well, I like him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, then it's like, oh, I'll just I'll glom onto that, and, and we're good to go. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of scary because he's really – he's good at that. He's also, like, a little bit funny, too. Because I've seen, you know – I've seen clips where he goes, so uh, the Eminem is, uh, she's sexy again, but now she's a lesbian, maybe? And one of them is uh, body positive. <laughs> this is the liberal media, folks. And uh, we're going to keep talking about it because that's what we do. There's just like a hint yeah. of self-knowingness or self-awareness of like, this is ridiculous, but you eat this shit up, so we're going to give it to you. Yeah, he's feeding he's feeding them slop, but it's like, it's not like, like Sean Hannity where he's just like, Republicans, I'm like a party spokesman, where Tucker like says enough that's anti-establishment that gets people to kind of be like, 
or like the Eminem stuff. It's like, I know this is ridiculous and I know people are going to glom on and be mad. So half of the people would be mad. Half the people agree. And they'll, he's like such a perfect algorithm. Dude, you know, it's like, they're going to fight in the comments. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Maybe the hardest I've laughed in the past year was, uh, he had, um, I don't know if monologue's the right word, but his monologue, the day Fauci retired. Oh and it God. was, it was so unbelievably written. He was like staring into the camera with dead, like mock seriousness. And uh-huh. he's like, imagine the chaos in the organic Chaga Isle at Whole Foods. <laughs> when these women found out that their hero, Dr. Anthony Fauci, was retiring. Every, every, um, oh, what the fuck? Every Cornell graduate with weak husbands was reaching into her designer purse, clutching for a Xanax with manicured fingernails. And oh it's like, my God. this is so impeccably written and so funny and you're an asshole, but like, yeah, yeah. gotta give it to you, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, because he says something like that and like listen i got all the vaccines i'm like a bernie guy like a very i'm a leftist like i want universal health care like i have views on the world and but like i'm not like like i'm not somebody who's like yeah i'm wearing my fauci t-shirt today because like i love authority no. and like people who like kind of got a couple things wrong you're not rooting for bureaucracy all the way through yeah i'm i'm trying to i haven't started doing the bit yet but like i have this thought about like Anybody who would wear any politician's merch, I'm like, I'm like, I would rather you be like a Harry Potter person. Right. Where it's like, at least that's like a world that's entertainment. You know, it's fiction. Yeah. As opposed to being like, well, I'm a Democrat. Like that. Here's my AOC tax the rich t-shirt for $75. Yeah. Like that stuff. Like. It's like, it's all lame. Like, the way I feel about the MAGA hat is kind of the way I feel about, like, any politics merch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, dude, you're reaching. You're, all right, we're getting off on a tangent here. Yeah, but this sorry. Is, no, this is, uh, <laughs> back, yeah, a good tangent to get off on. But to take it all the way back to a little while ago. Yeah, so you please. go back to New York after After Scotland. Scotland and I, I got a job at a special needs high school on Long Island. I just, like, needed work. And I was living at home. And when you're on Long Island, like, there's something about it. It's like, oh, I'm a half hour or 40 minute tri- train ride into the city. But it's like 40 minutes and like more than that because it's like the wait, go to the LIRR, wait for it. It's yeah. delayed. It just th- then that slow creep into um, it depends. It depends. $17. Yeah. Like oh it's God. like so there's hurdles. There's hurdles. And I'm not creative on Long Island. And so like I ended up that year like running a marathon. I just like needed a thing to do mm-hmm. um, that I could just like focus on. And then I was like, I needed to get a job in New York. And so the next year I got a job in New York and I didn't really do stand up that year. Um, and what year was this? 2015? 2015. Okay. And you know, full circle moment, 2015 in the fall, I, cause people talk about like, Oh my, this is my starting date in comedy. I'm like, for me, it's like, it started and it stopped and it started again. It's a rolling like, start. Yeah. It's not like this is the day. So people, when people post about their anniversary, I'm like, Oh, I can't relate to that. Cause like, I don't really have one, but, um, I did a mic on the lower East side with my buddy, Dan Rader strong. I don't okay. know if you know, we worked yeah, at summer camp together. And, uh, then I went to UCB Chelsea mm-hmm. whiplash Monday night and saw, uh, Neil Brennan, and a couple, and this is pre three mics. He's working on the material for three mics. And the final comedian that night, they bring out a piano, and there's like this murmur in the theater because like Louis and Pete Holmes had been there like the week before, and it was like a big thing. And there's this murmur. It's like, oh, we bet to see Bo Burnham. Oh, 2015. So this guy comes out, not Bo Burnham, and just is like bombing. No, but like, and like the piano's face the wrong way, and like his mic is like. You can't really see his face from every angle. Like, it's just like a bad setup. It's not going well. And I'm standing in the back because I have a year of comedy under my belt. And I know that's kind of like where you're supposed to stand. And Neil Brennan stands next to me. And he's like, the guy's bombing. And Neil turns to me and goes, God, he's really got to turn the keyboard. Like, this looks awful. And I go, yeah, man. I think everybody thought, he goes, I, th- I thought it was going to be Bo Burnham. And he looks at it in the crowd and he goes, so did they. <laughs> As the guy's that poor bastard. And do, do you remember who it was? Like, no, yeah. I don't remember. I, he's probably listening. Uh, I have no idea who it was. But my full circle moment is that night I tweeted, went to my first open mic, had a piece of pizza on the way home on the Long Island Railroad, and saw Neil Brennan crush at UCB. And he liked the tweet. Flash forward to this November, my cousin writes The Daily Show and is friends with Neil and brings Neil to the show. Oh, that's great. And so I have this picture of Neil. And, like, and, and Neil is very honest and very blunt. That's like his reputation. And for years I've heard him, he told Berbiglia, oh, 
Thank God for jokes. It's good. It's not as good as my girlfriend's boyfriend. Like he says like mean shit to people. Yeah. Like, but that's kind of how Chappelle's show is so good where it's like not, we're not letting any fat get through. Yes. So he says to me in a line that like everyone who I like work with now we say all the time, which he's, he's like, this was before I did the show. Now I have graphics and sound and lights. But back then I was just doing it with a microphone walking around. And he goes, dude, get rid of the mic. Use a lapel or a headset. Walk around. Like make theater. He goes, you know theater. You clearly are like love theater. Your show's about theater. Like make theater. He goes, you know theater. And then he smiles. And he goes, you don't know stand up. Oh, no. <laughs> and I laughed forever. It's oh, the yeah. funniest thing that anyone's ever said to me because he knew he was burning me. Mm-hmm. It was there was a compliment in there, <laughs> but he also just burned the ever living shit out of you me. You know what that is? That's like I I hear I I just I hear that and it brings up this memory of football and people telling you if the coach isn't yelling at you, you're in trouble. Oh yeah. So like the fact that he cared enough to give a compliment, give criticism. Yeah, but couch it in like a funny way that that the shows three. an investment in like what you were doing and a care. Even totally, if it, and I think I, I, it's not may, might not have been what you wanted to hear, but it sh- it is more useful than just like oh, good show. Yeah. Oh my god. Well, he stayed at the theater for like three hours. Really. And me, him, Sam Morrison opened for me that night. The three of us, just and my producer Mahmood, we just like chopped it up. My cousin was there for a while. He had a babysitter. He's like, we gotta leave, and he came with Neil. And Neil's like, I'll stay. And he just like wow. talked to us. And so like, it's that thing where it's like, oh, he wanted to talk to me, Sam about his set, me about my show. Like we had this long conversation and there was a lot of nuggets in there. It makes me think, um, there's this video, Stephen Sondheim. I don't know how familiar you are with musical theater. I watched uh, tick, tick, boom. And I loved it. Yeah. Cause he's in there. Um, and he's an important part of the show. My show also, I used to write letters to Stephen Sondheim. So I have this like relationship with him and there's this video on YouTube. He did a lot of master classes where he'd be like, sing a song for one of my shows and like talk about the character, talk about them, the emotions, whatever. And there's this one song called not getting married today. And there's these three things going on. It's this long, complicated thing. And at one point, one person's singing really poorly and he just ignores them. And he's talking to the person that like has hope. And so when you say that thing about football, it's like, Oh, he's talking to this person because like there's something there to critique. Yeah. (laughs) Or to, to cultivate even. Yeah. I'm like tilling the soil like this, like that root, we could f- try to fix the root, but for now, this is more interesting. Yeah, that root has to fix itself. We're yeah. not, not going to invest time in this <laughs> shitty, very enthusiastic, but unfortunately shitty root that is, yes. that is built into the ground. Yeah, that's a real thing with, with all criticism. So I didn't take that super personally. And he also, a really valuable thing he said, which is a more of a solo show note than a stand-up note, but his special had just come out on Netflix, Blocks. Yeah. And he starts showing me all his DMs on Instagram. And he's like scrolling through like hundreds of DMs. Like people all over the world watch this thing. And he goes, look at these. And he picked a random one. He goes, none of these are about the jokes. All of these are about what do I reveal about myself? What do I say about my emotions, my depression, my struggles? And he's like, if you can make it funny, that's amazing. But if you can say something about yourself, now that's how you get hundreds of dms you know i saw i didn't see blocks but i saw three mics live same my wife and i went to go see it when it was live and the thing that i remember from that is not a joke but it's i think it's like a story where he talks he just admits openly like i'm a star fucker yeah like i've i've glommed on to people who are famous i want to be around people who are famous i want to um famous women i'm attracted to them because they're famous yeah like I, i think that was because people talk about honesty in comedy and like I, I it's a very blurry kind of line because for some people honesty is like oh I, I had sex with this crazy person or I shit my pants in public but it's like to me honesty is like what is the grossest thing about yourself and Mulaney mm. had that in the new special the thing about like being mad that no one in rehab recognized him leaving the newspaper oh, out my, I mean that is horrifying and and revolting on a personal level. But for some reason, when you channel it through that medium, it's you have empathy for him because you know, I have that impulse myself as a human being. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, I mean, I was walking down the street now. Um, 
and particularly when I'm like near where the sh- where I show ran, we did 47 shows off Broadway. So I know for a fact like 3,000 people saw the show. So I'll walk by somebody and I sometimes people look at me. I'm like, I wonder if they saw the show. I'm like, that's not a good thought. Like, I'm not famous. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of awful. Just to walk around all day like, yeah, it's me. <laughs> Gabe. It's so you funny. It's, <laughs> I was doing a show. I did a show in L.A. at the Dynasty Typewriter. And I got there early because I was like very excited to be there. And I get there early and the staff is like, hey, can we help you? I was like, yeah, I'm on the show. I'm Gabe. And they're like, oh, of course. And like, I start joking with them. I was like, oh, you guys don't know Gabe? Like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm a big deal. Like, I know. I know. <laughs> and they were like, were like, oh, Gabe's here. And I was like, yeah. oh, everybody watch out. <laughs> but did you feel like kind of gross after you made that joke a little bit? Um, I didn't because like they got it because okay. they were like L.A. people and like. Like, I think, like, Tony Hawk and Adam Sandler go to that place a lot. So I think they were like, oh, it's cool. But, like, yeah, there are times when I feel I feel that. And, like, Mulaney can walk into any coffee shop, basically in America, and everyone in that room, somebody in that room will recognize him. So it must have been weird to be in rehab. It's like nobody's recognizing me. Like, right. Well, he also talked about, like, I always worry what people think of me. So, like, I think that's probably been top of mind for him when he was on Benders of, like, oh, I'm, I'm completely strung out on Coke right now. Someone who kn- knows me is going to see me. What are they going to think? And, like, yeah. that's kind of a psychological, um, like, a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just like a starting point for him. That's like a baseline. He's always worried about that. So to get to a place in rehab and to carry that with him and just have it knocked out of his hand completely, I think, must have just been, like, really spun his head around a little bit totally and in that sense that in some ways is more interesting than the love of drugs because that's like a thing like oh i notice this about myself i'm working on this thing about myself in some ways that's more interesting than the critique i had which is like i want to know more about the drug use because he's like oh i'm i'm self-analyzing myself i don't do drugs because i love drugs i do drugs because it fills this hole Mm -hmm. in this other part of me that story isn't it's not about the drugs themselves it's about why he does the drugs yeah and again that's the the real the real meat of, of the stuff that you want to you totally. hear i feel like because like, the drug details are kind of sorted and fun and interesting yeah but it's it's that stuff below it that's like the real explanation yeah that like that desire to to be full all the time i mean he talks about this um like you were saying he talks about the idea of uh, being scattered all the time. And it's like, God, you're going from one drug thing to another. And also, <laughs> and also, like, you're worried what everybody's going to think of you. That's like chaos. <laughs> you, like, can't live that many lives. No, there's no <laughs> moment to rest psychologically. And you're doing speed on top of it. Like, yeah. No wonder you need the Percocets and, and the Clonopins and the Xanax to kind of yeah. chill out a little bit. It makes of sense. Of course. It, I empathize completely. I know exactly where he's coming from. One thing I also wanted to talk about before we go here, and, and you and I were talking about this at, at New York Comedy Club a couple weeks ago, is the the difference between performing, touring, and um, promoting theater versus yeah. doing that stuff for comedy. So for, for any listener who might not know, just walk us through your show real quick or the concept and, and kind of what happened. and, and the, Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll do this as fast as possible. I've been working on a solo show for years. I did it in 2019 in Edinburgh to no press, no crowds, no PR, nothing. Basically an abject failure. I had a great time, but like it wasn't like a success in any way. I revamped it during the pandemic. I started working with a a story producer who ended up being my director, this guy, Greg Wallach, who's amazing, who works with Hassan Minaj on his solo show. So like, that's how I found him. Um, and I, I did it at a fringe festival in Canada and in New York for five shows. And then in Edinburgh, and then I got one review in Edinburgh and then Jason Zinneman from the New York times saw the show in Queens and tweeted about it. And I had a comic recommendation. So between those three things, the review, the Zinneman tweet, and the comic wreck, I got a two-week run off Broadway. The show is called Solo. It's about it's a show about how I don't have friends. And I like talk about like that's like the main angle. It's like, well, what does this guy mean? It's like, well, I have bros, and then I had this friendship and it fizzled out, and this is what happened. So I have this like theater show basically, and now there's graphics and pictures and things move, like the settings move. I, I talk about a story of going to summer camp and like trees pop up. It's like a pop-up book. So it's become like pretty intricate. It's yeah. not, it's not, I used to, in Edinburgh six months ago, I was doing it like on a piece of plywood. I would unplug my phone. My phone was playing music. I'd unplug the phone, hit record on my iPhone and go, all right, let's start. But now it's like, ladies and gentlemen, Gabe, like I, it's like you, a You thing. took the Neil Brennan advice and made it theater. I took the Neil Brennan advice and made it theater. And so now it's like, well, how do I like make money <laughs> doing this? Because theater's expensive. 
And, and let me just say from an outsider perspective, you see like, oh, Gabe has this run off Broadway at the Soho Playhouse and yeah. all these people are posting pictures of it. Like this must be going so well. Yeah. And it is going well. It's selling tickets, but the financial reality of it is. Yeah. The financial reality is like, it's, 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 you know, it's funny. It's like, we've done all these shows and there's a lot of expenses. You got to hire a director and like, those are good things for the show. Believe me. You got to hire a designer. You got to hire a light person. You have to, um, we threw a party to like raise, like to take pictures of that. There's a photographer. There's this, like there's that. There's just like a lot of um, expenses. And it's part of me now, since our conversation, there's a part of me that's now, it's like, let's look at how the show did for the 2023 at the end of the year, as opposed to like being halfway through and being like, this is the number I'm at. Because I think that'll be more indicative. So now I'm starting to take it on the road a little bit. And certain places like, it's not a thing that I would take to go bananas in Cincinnati because it's just like not, it's not that it's not appropriate or I don't think it would work. It's that it's like, not the vibe. It's if not if the I was vibe. Gen Z, I was going to say it's not the vibe. And I heard a story going back for a minute. I heard a story of Berbiglia working out sleepwalk with me. And I don't know if this is true or not, but somebody told me a story that he was at go bananas, I think, or one of the clubs in the Midwest. And like people left where they're like, Oh, this is like storytelling. Like I wanted something different. I wanted bop, 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 joke, 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 joke. And for me, I'm like, one, like there's a bravery in that <laughs> where it's like you're there to sell tickets, but you're working on this greater thing. Um, so I'm trying to set myself up for success where like I'm going to do it in Pittsburgh at this place called Bottle Rocket that's had like Gethard and Allison Leiby and Michael Cruz Kane and like solo show people. So like that I booked by myself and we'll see how it goes. I don't know. Then I'm going to do like a couple city winery dates. I'm like, we'll see how those go. I don't know. But it protects you a little bit when you do like a theater show where it's like, um, oh, I don't. It's not like, oh, I'm not a draw at a comedy club. It's like, oh, like if you bill it as theater, like people see plays that they've never heard anything about. Yeah. <laughs> because they're like, it's a play. Of course, I'll go see it. Well, so yeah, they're not going to see it specifically for the actors. Yes. The actors aren't the ones selling the tickets, so to speak. Yeah. It's like this other thing. So I'm trying to navigate that. And I don't know if I'll love the road. I don't know if I'll hate it. I also have to sometimes travel with a tech. So it's like, God, I have to pay two people. Like I have to pay for somebody to come with me to Pittsburgh. The tech and the director? The director now lives in LA. And um, so he's we're basically even. But like with the tech, it's like, oh, we got to sleep over. I got to pay you for your time. Yeah. I got to bring you back to New York. Like it becomes this whole thing. So when you say pay two people, you mean yourself and the tech? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we have like a full version of the show, which uses a program called Q Lab. And there's like literally like 120 cues. It's like oh, behind wow. Gabe, things are happening. Um, and then like we have like a backup version on Google Slides. That's just like six slides. It's like, this is what we need if we totally stripped it down. So there's a part of me like as a capitalist, I'm like, when I do this in New Hampshire for like 700 bucks, like let's just do Google Slides. But if I'm going to do it at City Winery Boston, we're going to bring the guy. We're going to like do the real thing. Yeah. Like when's it at, where is it actually going to pay off but like to do that big tech investment? Like, yeah. In the bigger cities yeah. with like possibly some press. Yeah. But yeah. New Hampshire might yeah. not be it. God bless New Hampshire. If you're listening to this in your New Hampshire, please come. Live free or die. Live free or live die. Live free, die. Go to Gabe's show. <laughs> bring your gun. We'll have some tea or whatever you guys do. Maple syrup. Um, but I don't. So like the economics of this are totally different. But it's also kind of nice in that, like, I don't have formal credits. It's mm -hmm. not like I'm like, I did The Tonight Show, and now I'd like to headline your club or whatever. The show is the credit. The show is the credit. And I'm trying to figure out, like, the math of it and the strategy of it. And it's this kind of unique thing because, like, there's Brabiglia, and there's Alex Edelman, and there's Jacqueline Novak, and there's Allison Leiby. There's Gethard, who I've become friendly with, but, like, he's... Um, you know, when I got the off-Broadway run, I called Gethard because we became buddies in Edinburgh. And I was like, dude, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm freaking out. And he's like, listen, man, I'm not the right person for this. Like, Judd Apatow produced my solo show off-Broadway. Like, I had it. He's like, I had it made. He's like, like, you're talking to the wrong guy, man. I don't know. He gives you, like, that grandma advice. Like, you should call Judd Apatow. <laughs> yeah. Have you thought about yeah. that? He was so honest. He's like, dude, like, I, I, like you're hustling. You're Like, you're doing... He's like, he's like, I think that's great, but like, I'm not going to be able to like solve this problem for you. <laughs> that's crazy. So, um, so you're, so you're working on that right now. And that's, yeah. that's just, when are those dates coming up? 
it looks like Pittsburgh's end of June, and then July is going to be July is the grand experiment. It's uh, Philly, Boston, D.C., New Hampshire, and then in the fall, September, we're looking at like upstate New York, Glens Falls area, L.A. I'm going to do it uh, again in like a bigger place. And so, like, if you're in any of those cities, like, come come see the show. I promise it's good. Is there is there a goal for the show after that, or is it just kind of take it on the road, see what happens, and maybe move on to the next thing? Yeah, it's take it on the road. Eventually, the plan is to film, but that's like kind of down the road. I talked to somebody recently, um, who like knows a little stuff about the industry or whatever, and he was just like, I don't think this is peaked yet. And the theater that we've been at, Soho Playhouse, is open in the long run to having us back and doing the show. So the goal would be to one day like reopen. I would love to get somebody's name attached to it. Mm-hmm. You know? So people are like Judd Apatow, if you're listening. Yeah. Judd or like literally like there's a couple like certain types of celeb. The, sh- the show is a lot about Adam Sandler movies and my, my best friend um, loves Adam Sandler movies and he's ranked every Adam Sandler movie. And it's just like a big part of the show. And so I'm like, Somebody in the Sandler universe, you know. If like, you can't get out Adam Sandler, get like Nick Swartzen or like Alan Covert. Would, but yes, dude, Grandma's Boy fucking rocks. That's a great movie. It's so funny. <laughs> I, I I'll look up where Nick has it on his list because um, his list he I we show the list at some point in the show and it's like a big part of it. And people come up to me afterwards who are like, he should have uncut gems higher. <laughs> like like that, I'm like that's what you that want to take about. away from the show. I know. It's like I put to, together this whole thing and you want to yell at Nick. <laughs> Uh, all right, so then, so yeah, possibly coming back to the Soho Playhouse, see see what happens with it. Um, yeah. I think what's also interesting is like where like where are you at now with your day job? Because I think last time we talked, you're still working, but you're might be scaling back. Like it's yeah, I just had a talk with them about like what working part time would be and like how to do both things. And then like I'm looking at my schedule for September, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to Texas this weekend, and I'm going to L.A. that weekend. I'm like how am I going to do this? Like <laughs> that, again, this is something else. I was talking about this with Katie Boyle and we were talking about it a little bit at the club where it's like, there isn't this grand moment where it's like, I've made it. I quit my day job. It's over. You find yourself in this weird middle ground where it's like, well, I'm too busy to keep working full time, but I'm not making enough money to quit my job. Yeah. What the hell do I do here? Totally. I was just thinking on the way over here where, um, I was giving Graham notes on his show and I was like really proud of those notes. I was like, these are freaking good notes. Like this is like, I'm like turning his like road tested standup hour. I'm like helping him turn it into a solo show. And then I was like, I should be charging for this. Like I could be like the guy. And then I was like, do I want to be the guy who punches stuff up and makes money? Like that's my job. Or do I want to be a damn performer taking it on the road? It's like, so there's a part of me that's like, I don't want to start an online business and tell everybody I'm doing that. But maybe I'll just like message a couple of people. It's like, hey, you're working on an Edinburgh show. I have really cheap rates. Love to look at stuff like just to like start to use my knowledge and ability to like make a little cash, but not exploit people, you know? Yeah. Maybe that's like the transition point where it's like, all right, I move away from the day job and I'm doing something like in the sphere, but that's not quite exactly the thing that I want to be, but it's like one step closer to being there. Totally. And then you become like a small business that I'm like, cause I teach the college essay. I'm like, am I going to have to be on, craigslist like soliciting like high schoolers to like zoom with me it's like is that what i want my life to be but it's like these compromises where it's really difficult to it's it's not this grand moment it's really difficult to navigate it's not like i have this like um other sources of income or this like giant nest egg and sometimes it's nice to have the day job because it's like i don't have to worry about the bottom line of the show right now Mm -hmm. because i have this baseline where i can like pay rent and like have a bagel <laughs> dude that's that's been the the gift that having day jobs has given me even though it's been difficult and it's been frustrating w- with you know the fact that i need it and that kind of weighs on me a little bit but like yeah it is nice to be able to not have to worry about making rent and also going to h&h bagels on a saturday morning and really just you know maybe i'll get the lock sandwich today i'll go yeah. i'll go for it it's not i don't have to feel guilty about that yeah there is some psychological relief in that sure yeah my i mean the dream of money i think for i think for everybody is unless you worship it is to kind of just like not have to think about it that's the ultimate money privilege well dude money like money isn't really about money it's about the um freedom that it can give you totally um and it's about you know like for the way i see money personally is if i had enough or if i had enough coming in or had enough saved up or whatever it would allow me to live my life day to day in the way that's like most meaningful yeah. to me. And it's not about buying 
a certain kind of car or clothes or whatever. It's like it's it's a tool to acquire more of the most valuable resource, which is time. Yeah. Yeah. And like for me, my nightmare is and it happens all the time. I'm tired from a thing that like I didn't even want to do. Mm hmm. That mm. is... And it saps from the thing that you want to do. Yeah. I can't, you know, um, spend a time on this side project. For me, it's like restarting a podcast in some way where it's like, God, I just like don't have the hours in the day to like do this in the in the way I'd like to. And for me, I really just want to... I keep saying, and I was like, I want to live an artist's life where it's like, I want to be able to wake up and drink coffee and do my morning pages and go to a show and have a couple phone calls and not freak out all the time and the truth is it doesn't cost that much but you do have to have like a little bit more discipline than i have <laughs> right well it doesn't cost that much but it costs a lot over time and like and, and yes. the, the, the income is infrequent and inconsistent yeah and that's where the uncertainty comes in but yeah you're right that is like the dream lifestyle and like where you want to where you want to go with it yeah absolutely it, it's it's more about um it's more about the day-to-day -day ease than it is about like oh like yeah, I want a Mercedes. I'm like, I don't really care about that. Or I want a billboard above like yeah. Hollywood Boulevard or whatever. Yeah, I want to live an artist's life. But what's crazy now, and this is something I've talked about with a lot of people, both on the podcast and off, is to get that life or to get the success that you want, you have to do all of these things that are outside of comedy where you have to like be an AV expert. Yeah. You have to be a digital marketing expert. You have to be a social media expert. Um, it's, it's, and I feel like this, especially since the pandemic, this is not just comedians. I, I see it in mm. corporate life too. Everyone's workload has gone way, way up. Yeah. So like accountants are doing more, uh, salespeople are doing more, comedians are doing more. So it's like all these things that we're supposed to save us time and be efficient. Like all we get with that free time is more work. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't suddenly, we talk about like optimization where it's like, a hundred years ago, like the privilege, I remember having this debate in college where they were talking about um, cars and people were freaking out about like technology's ruining everything. And they were like a hundred years ago, people were freaking out about like, well, if everybody has a car, like the concept of time will change <laughs> and like the nature of like what 20 minutes means will change. Like, God, imagine how much more time we'd have if it only took three hours to fly to LA as opposed to the old Louis joke. It used to take 40 yeah. years. <laughs> it would be a whole different group of people when you got there. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's not like we're using that time. I read this really great book called 4,000 weeks. Yes, I have that you, book. Oh dude. Yeah. I, I, that was my Christmas gift for a bunch of people last year. It's a, it's a good one. Um, and it, he, they talk about it in the book where they're like, you're not filling that with more rest. You're not filling that with, Oh, I, I have time to go buy avocados and like eat a healthy lunch. Like if we're just filling it with, doom scrolling or more right, now I got to edit this and do that. And it's not, it's not healthy. <laughs> yeah. That's been my thing. It's I've been feeling more free time with like podcast stuff, clips for Instagram, all this other crap. And yeah. it's, it's, it's all done with the intention of like, Oh, eventually I'll get to this place where I won't have to. Every comedian just wants to get so big on social media. That they don't have to use social media anymore. That's the dream. That's the, that, that's the end goal. I had some friends who blew up like right pre COVID and like during COVID. And then like they, like one of them, maybe not a friend, somebody I took an improv class with got cast on like a TV show. And like now they just like don't post anymore. I'm like, that's the dream. <laughs> we're all we're all going to get there someday. That is certainly the dream. Uh, Gabe, where can people find you? Anything you want to plug outside of those dates of the show? Run them back again just just so people can write them down. We'll have yeah. Them in the too. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't have the dates on my head over the top of my head, but in July it's uh, Boston, Philly, D.C., uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, end of june june 24th is pittsburgh and then la portland are all tentative for september um, so if you're in any other cities please come check me out at gabe malika is the easiest instagram that's the only one i understand all right that it's the only one you do you use tiktok at all or is it just like um very infrequently dude i actually signed up for lemon eight the uh it's like the next tiktok Whoa. and i posted five videos on there and there's like nothing happening there okay so, like okay. it's not even my videos like you you do a hashtag and the hashtag has like 300 videos as opposed to like 8 billion on TikTok. Whoa. So I was, I, I tried to like, oh, I'm going to get ahead of the curve of technology this time. And it's like, no, nah, that's, that's not uh -huh. the thing to do. Lemon 8 is what it's yeah, called? Yeah, Lemon 8. Apparently it's also created by ByteDance. So it's like not going to be a thing anymore once everything gets banned. But I see. <laughs> anyway, follow Gabe. We're uh, on Instagram, which he, he knows and uses. And uh, <laughs> check out, check out the solo show 
Solo. Solo. Yeah, dog. At the Soho. Oh, dude, that's I never made that connection. That's, oh, yeah. Dog. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming by, Gabe. I appreciate it, man. It was fun. See you later. Oh, uh, fuck. It's YouTube, so I have to say like and subscribe. Yeah, smash the likes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's around here, and I hit think. The, hit the bell. Yeah, the, the bell. bell. Yeah, that's I got to do the little animations. So you got you to like, you got to subscribe, you got to do the notifications. You got to um, call me up and tell me you love me. You got to do all these things. Uh, yeah. Or otherwise, I uh, won't be fulfilled as a human Get being. into a fight about Mr. Beast. In the oh, comments. yeah. Please, yeah, yeah. You shouldn't <laughs> help those blind people. That's my take. What do you think? Sound off in the comments. All right. See you later, everyone.